0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. This is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What does the next generation of top chefs look like? On this week's show, we'll introduce you to three young chefs from three very different restaurants across the United States who recently received international acclaim as finalists in a salmon cooking competition. If you're a listener of our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts, you've been following my travels as judge of the Oroking competition. Over a 10-day period this fall, I traveled throughout the U.S. in search of the most delicious new salmon dish. On this week's show, we traveled to Lenoir Restaurant in Austin, Texas, Karasu in Brooklyn, New York, and Otium in Los Angeles in search of the winning dish. Along the way, I'll introduce you to Maya Lee, Yael Pete, and Jonathan Granada, three of America's latest batch of millennial chefs, making a mark in the food scene today. And we'll also take a virtual trip to New Zealand with David Smith to learn just what makes the sustainably farm-raised salmon from Oura King so special. We're fishing down under, And pulling up some winners on this week's Louisiana Eats. (music) To begin the judging process, I traveled to Austin, Texas to meet the first of the three finalists.
1: Hi, I'm Chef Maya Lee.
0: Maya Lee is the chef de cuisine at Lenoir, a tiny restaurant housed in a charming cottage nestled under ancient oak trees. She's a first-generation American born to Chinese and Thai parents, and during our conversation, I learned how her multinational background has shaped her theory of cooking. At the start of our interview, Maya described the food culture of her family.
1: I grew up in a family that we were very focused on food all the time, Um, family heirloom recipes, and every meal was always thought through. Um, My grandparents lived at home, so they were really the ones cooking all the time. Um, I decided to go into the culinary industry really to look for a chef. I knew I wanted to open up a restaurant. I had no idea I wanted to be a chef myself until I started and I realized how much I enjoyed cooking and creating. And then when I finished school was when I got my first professional cooking job. So you
0: studied in Denver at Johnson & Wales. And then tell me about the places that your cooking career has taken you.
1: I started cooking professionally at Rioja in Denver. Um, I was there with Chef um, Jennifer Jasinski. She opened up her first restaurant in Denver, and I was coming in there. She had told me that the experience that I had, um, she could take me as a stage, but not as a line cook, because all of her line cooks that she had were sous chefs at other places already. They had all taken a step down to work with her. I worked as much as I could. Um, I tried to ask as many questions as I could without being too annoying, making sure that I was asking the right questions. And then after about four weeks, I was hired. How
0: long did you stay there?
1: Um, I was there for a little bit over almost two years. I was there. Um, I started off as their stage and then I learned all the stations. I ended up leaving to go to Florida. It, I, we had a family um, emergency, my, and my parents at that point had already moved to Orlando. You know, my, my younger sister got into a car accident, and um, we had a family business, we had a donut shop. So I had talked to my chef that it was time for me to um, return to my family. I'm the eldest in my family. I stayed there for a little bit longer as my sister was still um, getting treatment. And then after my sister ended up passing away, I did leave. Yeah. And um, my other sister, I have two sisters, we decided to go and travel together. So we both left our jobs, <laughs> didn't sign a new lease, moved all of our stuff to our parents' house, and then we just went off to Southeast Asia. We ate, met family we had never met before, Um, We traveled all around for almost three months, and it was probably the best experience we've had together.
0: Maya, it must have been really an amazing experience. You must have had some amazing moments of both discovery and remembering.
1: Yeah, many moments. Um, My dad's family is still there, and my cousins, they just had inter- reintroduced us to dishes that we grew up eating you know a lot of similarities everybody has a sauce that um they have at home that they eat with with anything eggs fish you know so when we got there it's it's a sauce called nam and it's um it has chili garlic lime juice fish sauce sugar every every house has their own version and when we got there and we tasted theirs we realized this is why we're family it's exactly the same thing <laughs>
0: oh. Did you have a sense of coming home?
1: Yes, I did. I had a sense of coming home, especially when we were with our family. It was like we had known each other our whole lives. We were so similar in so many ways. Um, when we were traveling out in the city, you know, it, yes, sometimes it felt like you were a foreigner, but not when you start eating. You knew the flavors, so you felt like you were
0: home. Now, the things that you've just told me translate into this salmon dish that you have cooked for the Org King competition. How did you dream this up?
1: The dish itself for this competition was to be inspired by art. And my sister, you know, she lives in L.A. now, and she took me to the Broad, and we went to go look at the um, El Anatsu installation there. I was just mesmerized when I walked up. It was this huge sheet of metal that had had been weaved together. It looked like it was fabric, but as you walked up closer, you realized it was um, foil caps of wine bottles that he had collected. And that's usually something that we throw away. As I was walking up to it, it reminded me of fish skin. This metallic changes colors, is like deeper parts of it, darker parts, lighter parts. As we were thinking about inspiration of art for the the competition that came to my mind because the art piece itself is called strips of earth skin and i think you, you think of earth you think of water you think of strips of skin that's going to come from fish
0: so walk me through the technical preparation of this because you've got so many different things going on on one plate um, it starts
1: with breaking down the fish. We save the salmon heads and all of the salmon bones to make a salmon fumé. Then from there, we make the fumé, we um, take off the flesh from the skin. First we salt the skin side. We salt it heavily for an hour. After that we rinse off the salt, pat it dry, we put it in the oven for about an hour. At 170 degrees fahrenheit after that we take out the skin and we scrape up all the fat and then from there the skin goes into the dehydrator we dehydrate it at 120 degrees for 48 hours the flesh itself is uh, portioned into three ounce portions then we have two sides of the skin the one that is dehydrated for 48 hours and we also have smaller pieces of the skin that we fry into so it puffs, and that's where all the fresh garnishes are on. And and
0: that particular puffy piece is inspired by really a Hispanic thing.
1: Yeah, yes, the puffy chicharron, yes.
0: <laughs> As a matter of fact, if you deconstruct it this way, how many nationalities and, and different cultures do you think you've got combined on this plate?
1: Um, probably five or six. I mean, I think that if you think about all of the things that are on the dish. You know, we have Texas peaches. We have pickled watermelon rinds, which is very Southern. It's roasted peanuts. We have curry that's from like a Thai-based red curry. We have coconut milk that we're using as a thickener. Then we're dehydrating it. We're using fish from New Zealand. I mean, all these things, but I think that that's also what makes it make sense because it's a dish that's coming from the States and we're just as diverse here.
0: Well, it's exquisite. Now, what are you doing in Austin?
1: My husband, who's also a chef, got an opportunity out here in Austin, and he we came for his job. I was still trying to find my way through to see which groups to work with, which restaurants ins- inspired me, and which ones I admired. So I had staged around a lot of great places here, and I was able to find um, Chef Ty, um, he focuses on the San region of Thailand, and that was the first time that I had met a Thai chef doing it at the level that he was. My mother is from Thailand, and and when I had his food, I remember feeling like I was visiting my mom's side of the family. And I thought, I'm just gonna take this chance and work with him. He had great experience before that, and now this was his brick and mortar, like his namesake. So I was his opening sous chef there. And then from there, I've decided to stay in Austin.
0: So when you dream of the future, where is the future? And what does it look like? Um,
1: Professionally, I do dream of opening up my own restaurant here in Austin. I like the community. You know, it reminds me a lot of of Colorado, too, of Denver, but just no snow. So (laughs) I like that. And then on a personal level, you know, I would like to have a family and have my home life grow. Um, I think that once I reach a different stage in my career where I'm not running just day-to-day ops, then I can really have that balance. Um, I think it will come in time.
0: That was Maya Lee, chef de cuisine at Lenoir Restaurant in Austin, Texas. After a short break, we meet two more top finalists and then we'll reveal the winner of the International Oroking Competition. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy, and nine varieties of fresh Gulf fish, caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter.
2: My name is Yael Pete and I am the co-chef of Karasu in Brooklyn, New York.
0: I found finalist number 2 in Brooklyn at an elusive Japanese speakeasy. To locate the restaurant Karasu, first you have to walk through an American bistro called Walters. Then, you have to go down a hallway to a door at the other end in order to find chef Yael Pete. Yael's mastery of accessible Japanese cuisine and her training as an animation artist made her Ora King dish stand out, as did its exquisite presentation within a handmade bowl and a clear teapot. After I tasted Yael's creation, which she named the Sorcerer's Apprentice, I asked her how she started cooking at Karasu.
2: I befriended the owners of Walters many years ago and behind their little American Bistro on the corner of Fort Green, there was a chiropractor's office. Yes, that's for real. And when the chiropractor's lease ran out, the landlady offered them, them this space. It's intimate, you can't get in through the side because there's apartments and it's dark. And they said, what would be appropriate for a space like this? And they said, oh, well, you know, an intimate cocktail bar. There's nothing like it in this quiet neighborhood and they saw a niche that needed to be filled. Unfortunately, they really don't know a lot about Japanese cuisine, and that's where I came in. When I got here, the chef had decided to leave, so this is about two weeks before they wanted to open, and I became this de facto leader, which is really quite scary and exciting. Um, You know, restaurants can be I mean it's taboo but they're abusive and they're difficult and I was leaving a situation where I was really overworked and really unhappy and this was my new chance to create a healthy environment where you know I was in control of myself and had my own autonomy and my friend Alina uh, had just moved back from Tokyo a couple months after we opened And we instantly bonded, and she, you know, brought her family's recipes to the table, and we became partners, and Karasu has flourished ever since.
0: Now, I'm here because you are one of the finalists in the King Salmon Competition, and your dish that I'm tasting right now is simply magical. Tell me all about it. So I started with a roasted Aura King
2: belly fin because I really wanted to do a coat component and the fin is a special part of the salmon where you only get one or two portions. Then I followed it up with a hot salmon dashi that I made by smoking and drying the tail fin of the Aura King for three months. Those were my main Aura King elements and I wanted to bind them conceptually in a cohesive dish So I did that by creating a kind of classic soba and broth by making my own buckwheat noodles. And I finished it up with a bunch of different leek elements, uh, raw, fried, and roasted, because I wanted them to be an incarnation of the Fantasia broomstick, which was not edible and was on fire in your bowl.
0: (laughs) Now explain why Fantasia? Why was your art inspiration all about animation?
2: My original major in college was animation, and actually, when I heard that the Ora King theme was art, I was really, really excited, but I didn't have any direction. Um, there were a lot of different pieces I was looking at, but then my professor, who I hadn't seen in nearly a decade, uh, was in town for Pride Week, and she asked to come in for dinner, and I was really excited, because she was a really, really stern woman and when I dropped out of college, she was hurt, she was personally devastated and she couldn't understand why I was giving up on my dream. You know, she looked me dead in the eye and, and was just confused. But she had seen everything I was doing with food, you know, and when I did see her, I was just in tears because she was really proud and, you know, she, she finally understood why I was doing what I did that's when I got inspired to do something based off of animation. It felt, it felt so obvious, like just after about, you know, a month of thinking about it. Sorcerer's Apprentice thematically felt the most appropriate and felt the most like my own story. Um, Cause I, I sat down and decided to, to watch Fantasia. Um, it was one of the first animations that I fell in love with that felt like art and not, you know, a cartoon everybody thinks animation is a cartoon and it kills me because it's really just thousands of pieces of art strung together to move. You know, I I think animation is one of the most devoted forms of art there is.
0: I love the way also you have the element of the dashi going into a teapot. Take me through that process because I'm really amazed that you went through that three-month drawing process to create the flakes to make the broth with.
2: When I heard Orga King was having a competition and I decided to compete because I've never competed like this before, I said I was going to push myself as hard as I could conceptually. And something I haven't seen anyone do is dry the salmon. So as soon as they said they were having a contest, before it was art, before it was Fantasia, because I knew it was gonna take at least two or three months, I said, I'm just putting a salmon tail in the dryer and we're going to see what happens because dashi is really the base of a lot of the food I use at my restaurant. And I thought, theoretically, if you can make katsuboshi, this dried katsuo that enhances soup, it can be done with salmon. I chose the tail because I needed the leanest part because katsuboshi isn't quite as fatty as the Ora King. Then I smoked it with hickory, threw it in the dryer. Uh, My first batch actually in the drying process got wet and molded and I cried for a long time, (laughs) but I got it going again. And when the theme was finally announced and the soup was finally conceived, it all wove together. And I loved my dashi so much, the components of the kombu, the salmon, the mushrooms. There's even some dried leek in here as well. Uh, I wanted to show it off. So why not a glass teapot?
0: I'm very curious how someone who is studying animation Decides to become and then becomes a chef. Where in the world did you acquire these skills?
2: Growing up, I cooked a lot. I had a single mother and she worked a ton. And we grew up cooking together. So I always kind of had a base skill set. And when I went into college, the thought really wasn't what am I going to do afterwards? I went to college to learn and to hone my craft but about halfway through, you know, that looming notion came by, what am I going to do after I graduate? And it scared the crap out of me. And I think it I think it scares a lot of college students and young people aren't prepared. They know what they love to do, but they haven't concentrated on how they're going to do it for a living.
0: Where did you grow up and what were you and your mom cooking at home? Not this kind of food.
2: No, no, definitely not. Um, I was born in the city and grew up in New Jersey with her. Um, and I grew up in a Jewish family. Not super religious, but very, very warm and connected. So I was making a lot of Jewish food, like big briskets for the, big, the high holy holidays. That's the kind of homey food I grew up making. But Japanese food was always a secret love of mine. And it was a cuisine that I never really thought I would be invited into learning, but I started working at a Japanese restaurant where most of the people weren't Japanese. They came from all sorts of countries and all sorts of walks of life. So it was kind of a new wave of people who were interested in the cuisine, but were also not afraid to let new people in. Japanese food has a very, very long history and a very, very wide breadth of techniques, more so than almost any other cuisine I've seen from any other culture. So as an artist, don't you want to have the biggest range of tools and colors? Like, I just think the Japanese palette provides the most technique and diversity compared to anything I've ever seen. When you think about tasting menus and Kaiseki, they were doing that a thousand years ago
0: that's wild what do you think is in the future when you dream what do you dream of
2: well I'd really like to work in Japan in the future I have a friend working on a farm out there where they're really enjoying bringing people in from all over the world to learn about farming and to learn about Japanese suburban culture outside of you know visiting as a tourist in cities so I, I hope to do that eventually um, Alina and I hope to get a restaurant that has a hood and a gas line. We really do. We really hope we can um, achieve that and to bring a kind of more complete dining experience to people. But overall, it's exciting to be in a contest and representing womankind and to be in the contest with another woman. You know, it it really means a lot to me. Um, I had a, a male rival recently say oh well you've already got a leg in the door you know because you're a woman and the focus is really on women right now and i didn't actually punch him though i considered it but i looked at him and it's like it's really funny that you feel that way that you're not in the spotlight because you are in all of these competitions and you are getting all of these awards so i felt extra compelled to to do something like this and to stand forward and to represent other women in my field and to succeed.
0: Yael Pete, co chef of Kurasu, a Japanese restaurant and bar in Brooklyn, New York.
3: My name is Jonathan Granada, and I'm the chef de cuisine at Otium Restaurant in downtown Los Angeles.
0: And now, we visit finalist number three, Jonathan Granada of Otium in Los Angeles, where he serves as chef de cuisine under executive chef Timothy Hollingsworth. Jonathan caught Timothy's attention during the years he worked his way up from commis to line cook at Thomas Keller's famed French Laundry in Napa Valley. Only in his early 30s, Jonathan has already become a big fish in the Los Angeles food scene. Entering the airy, beautiful space that Otium occupies, I found Jonathan intensely preparing for his salmon marathon. He began by telling me a little bit about his meteoric rise up the culinary career ladder. Jonathan, you are a freaking rock star. Why are you a chef? How did all of this begin?
3: Uh, my mother, I could say. I'm the youngest of six. While all my siblings were out doing sibling things, I was left at home because I was the youngest. So I just hung out with mom, hence why I'm a mama's boy. So laundry, all those kinds of things come second nature.
0: <laughs> so, did you cook with mom?
3: I did. My background is Colombian and Irish. My mom is Irish, but she took after my dad and his mother, my grandmother, with Colombian cooking. So growing up, she made a lot of Colombian food. So kind of, I think, sparked the creative culinary drive.
0: And where was this growing up happening?
3: Orlando, Florida, unfortunately. I decided to cook probably when I was 14. I knew once I, once I found out the term culinary arts and what that meant, then that's when I knew I wanted to do that and I had not an uncle that lived in Atlanta that offered me a place to stay and to go to culinary school so I moved out there. From there I met a chef that had worked for Thomas Keller and Eric Repair and Danielle Balloud and all these chefs in the early 90's and so he was my ticket into the French Laundry. His name was Pano uh, Keratosis and he became very fond of me just because of my passion and drive and uh, after I proved myself to him for after two years he had made the phone call to Thomas which had Corey Lee call me to set up the stage at the French Laundry. And I was 20 years old at this point.
0: Well, that's kind of a charmed thing to have happen. So how long was the stage? And then eventually you get a job there.
3: The stage I did was only a week, but I didn't get the job right away. So after my week of staging, I had to do a tasting. And again, I'm 20 years old, working for some chef, my first chef and still in culinary school. So I knew nothing. And He hit me with rabbit for three, rack kidney loin. I mean, of course he would. It's it's a high-caliber restaurant. You know, they expect a lot. And I failed the tasting, obviously, but he liked something in me, saw something in me, so he offered me a job at Bouchon, which I took later, and then I would use one of my two days off every week for a year and a half uh, to stage at the French Laundry, to get my foot into the door, and that's how I got into the French Laundry.
0: How long did you stay at the French Laundry altogether? Six years. So, in essence, your job here at OTM, you're still very, very new in your restaurant work experience, in years at least.
3: Absolutely, 100%. But luckily I have a good mentor, Chef Timothy Hollingsworth, that kind of shows me along
0: the way. Jonathan's a determined young chef who's got a knack for challenging expectations, which caught me off guard as I went into this third tasting of my judging assignment. You see, the paperwork I received from Ora King listed five dishes from Jonathan instead of the single dish I judged from each of the previous contestants. Despite the disparity, I was instructed to judge the five dishes as one using a 110-point scoring system. Jonathan showed me the piece of art which inspired his five-component dish. He'd had a friend help construct a collage of photographs from the lives of Anthony Bourdain and Paul Bocuse, whose lives and work have been a career-long inspiration to Jonathan.
3: Honestly, the, the idea for this dish came to me within 10 minutes, because the first thing that I thought of when I heard art, and everybody thinks maybe music, poetry, things like that, but Mine was my career, the career, culinary, you know, it's an artistic form in its own and what people have done. I mean, we have to eat every day. So I decided to take two pictures of Anthony Bourdain, two pictures of Paul Bocuse and one of both of them to kind of create a roadmap of my career. Now, every story is true, and all of this is completely heartful. The first picture I started with was of Anthony Bourdain smoking a cigarette. Everybody knows he was big on smoking cigarettes. And the, the, the reason I wanted to go to the French Laundry was I saw the YouTube video of Anthony Bourgain going to eat at the French Laundry and Thomas Keller canceling out his cigarette break to make him a marble red custard so he wouldn't have to leave his table. And I thought that was the coolest thing, the attention to detail, the, just the creativity of it. And when you watch the video, he immediately blushes when they tell him that. And he's like, oh my God, this is so amazing. You look like a little kid, like, this is so cool. I'm so embarrassed, but wow. You know, and it was just that me going, man, I want to go work there. That's so cool. I want to think like that. So I created the dish that was kind of not nowhere near better than Thomas Keller's. And I would never try to compete against that. But I wanted to do something also inspired off of tobacco. So I did the uh, confit salmon with tobacco leaf. And then I smoked plantain puree with tobacco leaves, filled it with frito Brick, and then did uh, burnt onion ash with it.
0: But that wasn't all. Then what happened?
3: Now, after knowing I wanted to go to the French Laundry and thinking about cooking, now the next step was being in culinary school, and then everybody talking about Anthony Bourdain, and now I started looking up more pictures of him, and there's this one iconic picture that's set with me of him, and that's him pulling the wine cork out of a bottle of wine with his teeth while he's holding a saute pan in the the air. And I remember being in culinary school, everybody thought it was cool to pour wine and set it on fire, and oh my God, look at me, I'm cooking with fire. So I used that, that wine and I created a dish with beurre rouge, which is a red wine butter sauce. And then I took uh Orking salmon belly and confit it to make it very soft and, and just like very, very textural. And then did over the top, because the, the salmon was soft, I did raw cauliflower florets, dried niçoise olive, frisee, tarragon, and fried potato. And then I served it with a cauliflower puree that was really thick and just made with nothing but butter and cream.
0: That was not enough. There's more.
3: So now I made myself to the French Laundry and I'm um, staging there. And uh, my first day staging at the French Laundry, I got absolutely murdered and it was just in over my head. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into the level of talent that was there. So after my first stage, I decided to go see a movie and kind of clear my head. And Ratatouille was out at this moment, the movie Ratatouille. And I loved the movie. And so I went and saw it. When I came in the next day, I kind of went up to a couple of the cooks to try to break the ice, and I was like, hey, have you guys seen the movie Ratatouille, eh? isn't it cool? Little did I know that Pixar had come to the French Laundry and put the cooks in these suits to help mimic the movements of the chef. And the chef Gusteau is actually based off Paul Bocuse. and if you look it up, you'll see, you know, pictures of Ratatouille with Paul Bocuse and... It was, just, it was a cool connection of, of the movie and the French Laundry and then the, you know, the dish. And then once I started working there, we would make it once a year. And then it became a tradition of mine where I make it once a year just because I love it. It takes a lot of time. It's very heartful and soulful. So I would go buy everything at home and I'd make it at home every year. And then I would also make it at the restaurant and serve it. So when I was thinking about dishes that I would do for Paul Bocuse that was a no-brainer to do ratatouille. But the way I did it with the salmon was when we would serve it at the French Laundry, the, like, what we would serve it with would be a lamb chop. Ratatouille, lamb jus, croutons, and basil.
0: Of course, that's what everyone would expect, lamb. I don't know that anyone has seen a salmon chop before. What the heck is that?
3: <laughs> so I learned that at the French Laundry, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a cut of the salmon made off of the back of the neck. So the back of the neck and using the collarbone of the salmon, uh, took it off, boned it out, tied it up just like a lamb chop, roasted it in a pan just like a lamb chop, and then served it with the ratatouille and breadcrumbs but i also took some of the skin from different parts of the fish and made a chicharron with it for more texture to off-balance the softness of the ratatouille
0: and then
3: (laughs) and then um another dish i really wanted to do to pay homage to paul Bocuse is his uh poulard and vessie that he does um at his restaurant in leon france where a vessie is a pig's bladder and i know that sounds gross But they clean it and it's honestly it's just a way of infusing like pig flavor into something and so i used a picture of paul boku showing his chicken tattoo which i thought was really really cool so i used that to kind of tie in the chicken and the vesee. but since salmon can overcook and salmon's not chicken i decided to use (laughs) a different part of the salmon that could be cooked like that so i took the tail part of the salmon and uh french the bone and took the skin off and then To add more meat to the fish and more fat to the salmon that's already fatty, I uh, covered it in truffles, wrapped it in call fat, and then stuck it in a bag with a salmon jus that I used by smoking the bones in our grill at Odium, and then put inside the bag carrots, mushrooms, and more truffles.
0: This last dish was one that you were kind of nervous about.
3: Yeah, this last dish I decided to pull out a lot, like the most technique that I've ever done to really challenge myself and to just give it a shot and see if it works, cross the fingers. So the centerpiece to this dish was when I did my research, I found that Anthony Bourdain and Paul Bocuse had shared a dinner at at Bocuse restaurant in Lyon, France, uh, right before they both passed away, and amongst a ton of iconic and amazing dishes that Paul Bocuse has, one of which was a whole bass and puff pastry. So it kind of felt perfect, like, oh, my God, fish, puff pastry, Pablo Coos, you know, Anthony Bourdain, this is perfect. So I had to manipulate a fish because I can't cook a whole 15-pound or a king salmon in puff pastry. It would be very difficult. and would take a long time. and would be very expensive. So I had to use the shape of a small fish, and then I carved out uh, a shape of the salmon loin, but I split it into two pieces and filled the middle with a scallop and truffle mousse, so that it would be even on the top layer, the middle mousse, and the bottom layer. And then to get the puff pastry around it, and to get the salmon inside of it, and then to get it to cook, and the puff pastry to be crispy, and the salmon to be cooked and not overcooked on the inside, and the scallop to be uh, cooked but not overcooked was very, very technical. It was a lot of resting and egg washing and freezing and then cooking and then resting and then carving and then rewarming. It was very, very technical, but it came out. I was happy with it.
0: That was Jonathan Granada at Otium in downtown Los Angeles. So there you have it three chefs, three cities, and three very different takes on the theme inspired. By art, and now the moment you've all been waiting for, where we reveal which chef won the big prize in New Zealand for their Ora King salmon dish. We reached the winner by phone to offer our felicitations. Ora King champ for 2018! Congratulations!
4: Thank you so
0: much, Jonathan Granada. That was the most remarkable day I spent with you doing all of that salmon magic. So were you surprised when you got to New Zealand? How confident were you feeling?
4: Uh, I was definitely surprised. I was confident as well. You have to be confident in your cooking to be able to cook. (laughs) Yeah. But I was definitely surprised, and I had a great time in New Zealand. One of my favorite things that's at the top of the list is being able to take my mentor, Timothy Hollingsworth, to New Zealand with me. And then for him to see me win, that was priceless. That was probably the highlight of the trip.
0: How did you all celebrate?
4: Uh, Working through a ceremony dinner where they announced all the winners and there was plenty of alcohol and beautiful salmon. (laughs) (laughs) And so... Uh, we started at the ceremony dinner, and then, when all the winners were announced, uh, everybody we ended up going to a local bar, just hanging out and having fun and laughing the entire night.
0: What souvenir did you bring home from New Zealand? besides
4: the the beautiful piece of art that I won from the competition. Um, I bought a kiwi, the the kiwi, the the national bird. Yes. I bought a little kiwi stuffed animal with a squeaker in it for my dog. (laughs) So I'm reminded of how often my trip was every time I come home from work because she has it in her mouth.
0: (laughs) Well, Jonathan, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you and certainly eat your food. So keep cooking, Jonathan, because you are something else. I can't wait for my next meal with you.
4: Thank
0: you, Poppy. Aura King champion for 2018, Chef Jonathan Granada. Now that I've got you hungry for salmon, what's the proper way to cook and serve it? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Saturans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. You'll also find video content on the site, including new fishing and camp videos from our friends at Don Seafood. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the proper way to cook and serve salmon? Some of your best choices include roasting, grilling, poaching, and saute, all of which are great choices for cooking that succulent pink flesh. But the single most important thing you have to remember when cooking salmon is not to overcook it. There's nothing sadder than a dry, overcooked piece of salmon. Personally, I like to quickly cook my salmon at high temperatures, just like I would a beefsteak. And I always have my trusty meat thermometer nearby. The minimum recommended internal temperature of salmon is 125 degrees. At that internal temperature, the flesh will be firm yet silky. But if you're cooking wild salmon, you may find it's properly done at just 120 degrees. That's because wild salmon has less fat than farmed, so the lower temperature will make the wild fish's muscles contract less for more juicy tenderness. And remember, when we're talking salmon fat versus beef fat, salmon fatty acids are rich with omega-3s, which do many good things for your body and your brain. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
5: My name is David Smith, and I am the East Coast Regional Sales Manager for Aura King Salmon of North America.
0: We've all heard about the one that got away. Well, we've got a tale of one that didn't get away. David Smith of Oroking tells us a fish tale that takes us from the shores of California to the rivers of New Zealand. During the journey, we'll discover just what makes those Oroking Salmon so special.
5: Well, so Ora King Salmon, it's actually um, over a hundred year story. Back in 1900, we had a few fishermen that came to California.
0: From New Zealand.
5: From New Zealand, yeah. And they, um, they had such a good time fishing king salmon that they uh, decided to bring some back to New Zealand to release into the wild. So they released some into the wild They had a great time sport fishing them. And then in the 1970s, they started farm raising them. And then um, Aura King came along a bit after that, so in the 70s. So Aura King, we like to think of it as our own breed. We do much like Wagyu beef breeding or Kobe beef breeding. What we do is we we take um, the best females, our best males, we would take a little chip out of their fin, to make sure they're not related, we do do a DNA test. And then we look for uh, strength of fish, color of filet, oil content, fat content, strength of their eggs, um, and then we breed them together that way. So we have, we have a hatchery in the uh, Takaka Valley, which is northwest of Nelson, New Zealand. It's the top of the South Island. We have um, marine biologists that work in the Takaka Valley. And... We keep our uh, brood stock in separate pens, and when the females are ready to release their eggs, we, we harvest their eggs, and then we harvest the milk from the males. That's when we identify families. So right now we have 240 separate families in our database. So we raise them in our freshwater facility for 8 to 10 months. Our uh, freshwater facility... The water that we use is, it's certified as the cleanest and clearest water in the world. It's actually blessed by the Maori, who are the natives of New Zealand. It's illegal to touch the water. The chief granted us permission to cut a little inlet going into our hatchery. So we have a small inlet that goes into our hatchery. It's all gravity fed, no pumps. Our smolt are raised for 8 to 10 months in that water and then we transfer them to sea. And the way we transfer them to sea is we've converted a dairy truck, which slowly salinates the water to to the ocean. So it mimics their natural progression from fresh to salt.
0: Oura king salmon are bred specifically for their fat content, much like the Wagyu beef. How does it compare when it comes to fat?
5: So if you were going to Going to compare a um, a wild king salmon to an ora king salmon. Wild kings, you're seeing somewhere between 17 to 19 percent fat. Ora kings, you're pushing 30 percent.
0: Wow, tell me about your experience working with the American chefs.
5: It's a very easy sell, <laughs> so it's fun. You know, it's just great. I mean, chefs. To see them taste it for the first time, it just blows their mind. It's like they've never had salmon before in their lives. It's like uh, eating a piece of fish butter. I can think of multiple, multiple times where I've gone in and a chef doesn't want to see me, he doesn't want to talk to me, but I have a sample, and I'm like, you know, just just cut a piece raw next to whatever you're using and, and let me know what you think. And sure enough, the next day, he's already in King.
0: And, of course, we know that Emeril is certainly a big fan and supporter. Who are some of the other chefs who you might be able to find serving Ora King?
5: Now that Sakai season is over, you you might be able to find it at uh, Bayona with Susan Spicer. Oxlot 9 on the North Shore.
0: Ah. He, he
5: runs it all the time. Across the street from him, Del Porto. You know, New Orleans was buying zero Ora King about a year ago and now that they're doing pretty well with it.
0: That was David Smith, fishmonger and East Coast sales manager for New Zealand's Ora King Salmon. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcasts and also order a personalized copy of my new book, the just released Pascal's Manali Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website too, as well as directions for how to find us. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullidoux. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.